It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor in London. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Will Lloyd. I am a commissioning editor and writer, and I'm in London as well. It's Thursday, the 25th of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, we discuss the UK's recent National Conservative Conference and how a US movement has gone global. We need to get overall immigration numbers down. And we mustn't forget how to do things for ourselves. There is no good reason why we can't train up enough truck drivers, butchers, fruit pickers, builders or welders. And then we turn to the Belgorod region, where Ukraine-aligned militias have staged an attack on villages within Russia's borders. We're Russians like you. We're people like you. We want our children to grow up in peace and be free people that can travel, study, and simply be happy in a free country. But that has no place in today's Putin's Russia. We discuss who was behind the attack and what it means for the war in Ukraine. Thank you for joining. Let's begin. So, Will, I'm going to start with you. Thank you. This is your first appearance on This is. On this is. I'm breaking my duck. My World <laughs> Review duck is broken. I'm not even sure what a duck is. Anyway, sorry, Megan. Go no, on. that's okay. Thank you for joining us. Hi. So, you've written the New Statesman cover story this week, which is on, among other things, the National Conservatism Conference that took place in the UK last week. So, I guess just to start out, for any listeners who were not aware, could you briefly define what essentially national conservatism is? Well, helpfully, the national conservatives, which are a sort of pan-national movement who stage events off the back of a uh, think tank called the Edmund Burke Foundation, which was founded in 2019 by an Israeli-American academic philosopher called Yoram Hosni. Thankfully, last June, they actually released a statement of principles because people were asking the question, what is a national conservative? And obviously, putting the word national in front of any sort of political philosophy can sometimes have quite sinister associations. So they released their manifesto uh, last June, includes um, a a variety of statements. So it talks about the importance of the Bible and the family as the foundation of Western civilization. It has a critique of free markets, uh, not being absolutes. It calls for restrictions on migration. It's anti-imperial in the present day, 
if perhaps not in the past. And so it has a variety of points like that. It was signed by, among other people, Michael Anton, former national security advisor for Donald Trump. Rod Dreher, who's quite famous, um, orthodox Christian American author and columnist. Charlie Kirk, who's quite a regrettable figure in American politics. He's a sort of talking head. I think that's the most polite thing you could say about him. Peter Thiel, who is... What's the most polite thing you can say about Peter Thiel? I think he's interesting. How about that? That is very polite. Christopher Rufo, the anti-critical race theory campaigner. And so, yeah, and so the National Conservatives have got these, um, these manifestos and they hold conferences all over the world. Now, that's the sort of surface level and that, that's who are these people and a little bit about what they believe. But one of the things I say in the piece, I think it's really important to think about the National Conservatives in another way. And I would locate the origins of National Conservatism precisely the moment where Donald Trump is in Trump Tower and he goes down that golden escalator and he runs for president. Now, within a few weeks of Donald Trump's uh, sort of speeches and rallies, a meme appears. And that meme is the sort of political quadrant meme, authoritarian right, whatever, libertarian left. And in that meme, someone had put little bits from Trump's speeches and it managed to fill every section of the quadrant. Trump was basically a fascist, a communist, a lib. He was everything all at once. Now, somebody had to make all this stuff cohere. People on the right in America, the settled consensus about what right-wing politics was, was completely smashed by Trump. And so somebody had to take all these weird attitudes and sew them into a political ideology. The person who first attempted to do that was Steve Bannon. Bannon, obviously, is the strategist who comes in August 2016, does Donald Trump's tie, clips his fingernails a little bit, and helps him, helps him beat Clinton. And Bannon leaves in 2017. And then he goes on a kind of global populist roadshow. He flies over to Europe. He says he's going to start a gladiator school for populists in the hills above Rome. He attempts to form a group in the European Parliament. Um, his overtures are rejected by European populists. It doesn't work. But Bannon says something that I've thought about often since he said it. I think he says this, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he says it in a speech at the Oxford Union, maybe in 2018. He says this to an audience of young people. He says, Donald Trump will be in your life in 10, 20, 25 years time. It's quite a strange remark, quite a mysterious remark. I thought, what does that mean? When I, on the 15th of May, 2023, was at the National Conservatism Conference, and I watched a series of sort of British academics, journalists, pundits, philosophers talk, I realized, ah, Donald Trump is in my life. This is what Bannon meant. It meant that people would take Trump and Trumpism and try and make it into something, try and make it into a, a real political program. And so that's what the conference was about, I think, in a deeper way. Yeah. So it's interesting that you make the point that national conservatism as Bannon saw it and as he tried to like take it on his you know, European tour, it was dead on arrival. It, mm. it, it didn't really take off, but it did take off in the US. It has transformed the Republican Party. We see elements of Trumpism in every single candidate and every like strong GOP grandee is too afraid to actually distance themselves from more of the really dark elements of Trumpism. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that I think Trump is Trump. So Trump is basically just a sort of appetite in a suit mm. and he sort of rolls around and he says his things. But so many other Republican politicians, I'd include Ron DeSantis in this. I'd include J.D. Vance in this. I'd include Josh Hawley, the influential senator in this. I'd include Marco Rubio, who used to be the kind of GOP poster boy of the old consensus. What was the old consensus? It was foreign wars. It was not really being that bothered about migration and the border. Um, it was belief in free markets and some sops to social conservatives. Well, that's changed. The social conservatives have, have ridden on the back of Trump and they have more power now. You know, Marco Rubio was at the Miami 2022 National Conservatism Conference and he went up on stage and said, I am a national conservative. Ron DeSantis has also spoken at these. 
Vance spoke at the one in London via video link. Oh, did he? What was his message? <laughs> I actually didn't watch it because I really wanted to focus on the British side. And I did need to speak to people when Vance was doing his bit. And I also, I'm not sure how much I can stand him really. Right. Because I thought his book was quite interesting, but he's become like a little miniature Trump. I mean, there's no way of, we're now speculating far away from what we're talking about, but I don't really think he believes a lot of what he's saying, but he thinks it will work. And so there's always a question with these new political ideologies, like who's an opportunist? Who's a true believer? Ron DeSantis has certainly gone on a journey, I think. Mm -hmm. If we look at what kind of stuff he was saying in 2013, Rubio has gone on a journey. But then you look at someone like Teal, or you look at someone like Josh Hawley, they haven't gone on a journey. I think they believe this stuff. Do you think someone like Holly, not Holly as much, but Teal definitely, less that they're, you know, found something that they're like, yes, this kind of spells out what I believe in, or are they kind of a guiding force for what this movement is? Well, there's an interesting detail about the Edmund Burke Foundation, who this kind of grows out of in America. You know, one of their donors is uh, something called the Donors Trust. It's a dark money fund. We don't know who gives money to it. I have no idea if Peter Thiel's involved. I don't know what I could actually get away with saying, but... You have some suspicions about certain Well, people. I mean, you wonder. You mm-hmm. wonder what the, what the... You know, this is a very generous billionaire in some ways. Um, he gave a lot of money to Trump in 2016, he, although he has said he's not doing it this time. But what Bannon tried to do was make institutions. And you needed intellectuals. You needed young people. You needed that kind of energy to turn these movements into something that would outlive Trump and mm-hmm. survive Trump. And I think the National Conservatives are doing that. In 2019, they actually held a one-day conference in London. The main speaker was Roger Scruton, very few MPs there, no one particularly interested. The media wasn't interested in covering it. Now look at 2023. Because of what's happened in America, because of how far this has gone in America, I think there's so much more interest in it now. And we had two cabinet ministers from Rishi Sunak's government attending, making speeches, very different speeches, I think with very different aims, but it was still very telling. You can, if you want, just for our listeners who mm. will not maybe have yet read your piece, I guess we can talk about the UK perspective and and what what kind of, what did it seem like these cabinet ministers and the other MPs who attended, what did they want to get out of this? Are they opportunists? Opportunists maybe is a bit strong, but they all wanted something different. Suella Braverman came over and she um, she just made a leadership speech. It was actually uh, someone muttered as, they, as, <laughs> as the speech finished, as, as she walked away, they muttered, oh, that was a bit liberal. And if you go and read the Braverman speech, <laughs> you will find it was not particularly liberal. Is that the first time that's ever been said about uh, Suella Braverman? Yeah, possibly. I didn't include it in the piece because I thought, God. Michael Gove definitely isn't a national conservative. Michael Gove came in, said, I'm a social liberal. At the end, he was asked what conservatives should do if and when they lose the next general election. He said that they should read Jane Austen. So I don't think he was going for sort of a, a Trumpist note. I guess that's not in the NatCon manifesto. The reading list, as far as I can tell, has not included Jane Austen. Although the way social relations were set up during the time of Austen's novels would probably appeal to quite a lot of people Bit in the movement. In. You know, everyone get your bonnet ready for the NatCon takeover. I shouldn't be too sarcastic because one of the things I really want to do in this piece is take it very seriously. If we look at what's happened in America, in Britain, I think it means that it's on us to take these ideas seriously, try and imagine why, what kind of appeal they might have. I think the big difference between America and Britain, Britain does not have that religious right. It just doesn't really mm-hmm. exist here. This is an incredibly secular country. Mm-hmm. For 300 years, schoolboys in Britain read John Bunyan's A Pilgrim's Progress. If we took a copy of the Pilgrim's Progress out on the street and sort of waved it in someone's face, they would not know what it was. That Protestant thing doesn't exist in Britain mm-hmm. anymore. That evangelical thing is quite strong in London, but not in a way that can tip the scales of politics. So that's one of the challenges for national conservatism in the UK. Can I ask, I think implicit in your remark about the Trump political compass is that Trump 
can't really be placed ideologically beyond, I think, very strong tenets on particular ideas. But, you know, if you were to try and pinpoint him ideologically, it would be not too easy. He's not, he's a kind of typical right populist, but also has positions that are very heterodox in terms of pre-Trump republicanism, for example. Mm. That makes him as a kind of ideological model quite complicated for other national conservatives across the world. I was wondering if you could talk about perhaps a more kind of coherent ideological model, Viktor Orban, who is the the influence cited on national conservatives and strikes me as a more coherent, ideologically coherent role model than Trump for people who are, who are not in the US, who are perhaps looking to emulate some of the ideas of, of national conservatives. I, I, I can't actually think of a time when Hungary has been so influential on the way that, for want of a better word, Anglo people think. In Rome in 2020, the National Conservatism Conference, Orban was a kind of guest of honour. He was fated. There was fanfare for him. And what they look to in Hungary is a model of anti-globalist, pro-natal resistance to the ravages of modernity. And so you've had Tucker Carlson do did he do a week of Fox shows from Hungary? And you've had Ron DeSantis explicitly, I think, or either DeSantis or people who advise him explicitly talk about Hungary as a model for the state of Florida. Now, what to make of this? I mean, we know that Orban's pro-natal policies haven't really worked, haven't really affected the birth rate in Hungary. We know there's probably going to be more deal-making with the EU than staunch resistance to it for, forever, just because sheer economic factors, like the number of German car parts that are made in Hungary, mean that like politics and economics can't, can't really be separated. And one of the things the NatCons are quite weak on is actually thinking about economics in a serious way, other than saying we don't like it at the moment. We don't like what they call globalism. We don't like the way trade works with China. We don't like importing workers into our countries and stuff like that. The Hungarians are basically ubiquitous in this movement, though. There were Hungarians in London. There were always Hungarians in the American conferences. A lot of money is sloshing around in Brussels from Hungarians who are setting up magazines and think tanks and institutions. They are pulling the direction of Anglo-American conservatism, pulling it towards what exactly I think is a very open question. So if I have this right, the way national conservatism has manifested in the UK so far seems to be still a bit more incoherent than it is in the US. Yes. Has it made any attempt to grapple? You said it, it, it hasn't really thought deeply about economics. Has it made any attempt to grapple about the hard facts of governing versus just lofty ideals? Well, <laughs> you look at the way British conservatism has gone since 2016. I kept, this is a very strange thing to admit on a New Statesman podcast, but I felt this kind of deep, deep sense of nostalgia for David Cameron watching these people talk. I thought, oh God, no, you know, talking about spiritual crisis is all very well and good, but how to solve it? I I didn't really see where that was coming from. And then I remembered something that Bannon said. Uh, He talked about a generational project, forming a counter elite, breaking the hegemony of of the big liberal institutions, a long war, a long march. And I thought maybe it's the attitude that actually is important. Maybe it's if this criticism resonates with people, it's very dark criticism. The word I use is Welbeckian. It's like being in a Michelle Welbeck novel. If that can land with people, then maybe they will have the opportunity to govern. I mean, it looks like in America that may happen at some point. So I don't have a good answer to that question. Just a slightly, slightly nervous feeling. To compound that nervous feeling, my last question before we'll let you go. You said you went in this taking it seriously. Mm. You really wanted to grapple with what was happening there. Do you think that this could be the direction that the Tory party is headed in? If the Tories lose the next election, which seems likely, but then after the sort of the previous sort of four or five years of politics, 
I do feel as if almost anything can happen now, so I don't want to write them off. And, I, and people who are representing Sunak at this thing, or knew Sunak, were very firm in their belief that this is the most competent Tory prime minister for a generation, and that he was actually really good at this job, and that he would turn it around. They, they try their best to spin journalists. But if they lose, then, you know, the kaleidoscope has been smashed, the pieces are all lying all over the place. And what's there? There's a sort of Liz Truss vision, Tory politics. There's a Boris Johnson vision. And there's this thing. And say DeSantis is in the White House. How will that make people think about national conservatism in the UK? They will think, ah, maybe if it worked over there, it could work over here. We've had Rachel Reeves this week over in America talking about Bidenomics, talking about how it's a model for the Labour Party. One of the things that British politicians love more than anything is American politics. They love reading long biographies of Lyndon B. Johnson. You know, they, Washington sneezes, we catch a cold. So I do think for that reason, there is a possible future where you have a national conservative leader like Suella Braverman or someone else. But my main thing, the thing to leave on, is that I felt like I hadn't seen the person who was going to do that. I felt like I was watching people sort of drumming for that person. And it may or may not happen. But it was quite a, I did get this sort of eerie feeling. On that foreboding note, thank you so much, Will. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Ido. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We'll make sure to link to Will's cover piece for the New Statesman on the National Conservatism Conference in the UK 
in the show notes if anyone wants to read that. Now, moving on, we head to Russia, where Ukraine-aligned militias have attacked villages in the Belograd region. Ido, I'm going to come to you on this. I was wondering, could you start a bit by talking about exactly what happened with the attack and what's happening on the ground and what is the latest? So what seems to have happened is on Monday this week, so on the 22nd of May, a group of anti-Kremlin Russian fighters broke into Russia proper. So as you said, the Belgorod region, which is on the border of Ukraine, sort of north of the current front line. And they claim to have, quote, liberated a couple of very small villages just on the border. And they're probably not still there. They were probably pushed out. But these are two Ukraine-based groups who oppose the war in Ukraine. They're called the Russian Volunteer Corps and the Free Russia Legion. They seem to have basically broken into Russia. Obviously, they were probably doing this with the support of Ukraine, but they seem to have broken into to Russia proper, taken several villages, killed Russian soldiers. It's just a kind of slightly different aspect to the war because these are... Apparently, people who claim to be, or at least some of them are Russian citizens speaking Russian, who seem to be hinting that they will bring the war inside Russia, actual fighting as opposed to kind of isolated attacks inside Russia. And am I right in saying Zelensky's government has um, distanced itself from the attacks and said they had, had nothing to do with it? Yeah, I mean, Ukraine, uh, throughout the conflict, we've spoken about it on the podcast very often, throughout the conflict, there are attacks on, on Russian territory, and Ukraine says it has absolutely nothing to do with it. Bluntly, that seems quite unlikely. It is, I would think, almost impossible that there would be a group of armed armed soldiers. There would be a couple of army units hanging out in northern Ukraine, completely un, un, unhindered, who just decided to pop over into Russia and then presumably pop back into Ukraine. The idea that they, they would be doing that without any... Um, kind of tacit support from from Ukraine, any kind of encouragement being provided with weapons and vehicles and so on, that seems to me to be vanishingly unlikely. The government of Ukraine has distanced itself from these fighters, but it, it seems impossible to me that these groups would not be acting with at least the kind of tacit endorsement of Ukraine or even the open support and backing. Mm -hmm. We have talked quite recently on the podcast about these attacks within Russia, within within the borders of Russia. And of course, we've always caveated that with how difficult it is to know who is actually behind this. But it does seem like there's been a definite escalation of these sorts of attacks. If you think about, we discussed a few weeks back, the drone attack on the Kremlin, these attacks this week. Is this something that... Do you think this is something that we're going to see more of if it is ordered by Kyiv? Is it something that they can really demonstrate the fact that they can bring this war? I guess, like in actual kind of absolute terms, this doesn't really seem that significant an escalation. These are really two very, very, very tiny villages right on the border with Ukraine in kind of territorial terms. This is not a huge incursion or whatever. But I think it, it does force Russia to think a bit differently about how it's going to defend against this much vaunted counteroffensive because Russia was fortifying the front line, fortifying its current positions, which were obviously nowhere near Belgorod. They were further south in occupied Ukrainian territory. And essentially, Ukraine is telling Russia that it has the capability and the willingness to at least endorse attacks across the Russian border to the north of the defensive positions, which were presumably much less well fortified. And Russia was counting on holding its troops along the current front line, the current line of defense. Then this perhaps forces Russia to 
think a bit differently about that and perhaps move some troops back up north to, on the border with Ukraine in the Belgorod region, you know, perhaps further up. So yeah, I think this is potentially the kind of thing that would suit Ukraine's aims, you know, if they can use these Russian units, which by the way, it looks like at least some of them are open neo-Nazis. So these are like very kind of unsavory mm-hmm. people. Um, and you might question to what extent it would be wise and advisable for Ukraine to ally with essentially open fascists, even if they happen to be fighting the same enemy. But yeah, I think this is the kind of thing you could see more of simply because it forces Russia to to spread its forces a bit more thinly to defend places it thought that it didn't have to defend. And presumably Kyiv isn't too keen to associate themselves with these attacks because its Western allies probably wouldn't be too happy with the fact that the war could be escalating outside of Ukraine into Russia. This seems to be the condition that a lot of weaponry has been provided to Ukraine. Uh, for example, the UK provided uh, long-range cruise missiles to Ukraine called the Storm Shadow missiles on the condition that they won't use to attack Russia proper because presumably the UK is, is scared of escalation and wants to avoid escalation. So Ukraine can use it within its own internationally recognized borders, but it can't use it across into Russia proper. And of course, these are incursions into Russia proper. I can't imagine Ukraine's allies are are particularly happy about this. But it is also important to maintain some kind of perspective. This isn't like a big ground invasion of Russia. It's a couple of units who captured a a couple of tiny settlements a few Mm -hmm. kilometers from the border. It's not some kind of it's not the 24th of February in reverse. So yeah, it's probably important to, to maintain some kind of perspective. But I guess it does show that that Ukraine um, is willing to ally with anti-Putin forces, even made up of Russians. There are Chechens fighting on the Ukrainian side. Uh, there are Russian and Belarusian units who have been fighting on the Ukrainian side. It wouldn't make sense that they would be used inside Russia proper, because ultimately that's that's who they're fighting for, really. This group is called the Free Russia Legion. Their leader published a video and they said, you know, we want to live in a free country. So clearly helping the Ukrainian war effort is a step to their own ultimate aim of liberating Russia from Putin. Ido, thanks so much. So that's all the time we have for today. Join us Monday when I will be interviewing the Ukrainian historian and author, Serhiy Plokhy, about his new book, The Russo-Ukrainian War. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Please also give us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been Michel Franco Duval. Thank you for listening and until next Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 